Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, Salt Lake Tribune religion reporter Tamara Kemsley joins us to talk about how religious faith affects people's views of the environment. We'll also explore how forgiveness can sometimes be weaponized in abuse cases. We'll examine the latest study from the Pew Research Center about America's nuns, those who claim no religious identity. And we'll look at a new poll in which Joe Biden leads Donald Trump in Utah by at least one measure, which candidate is a person of faith. Tamara Kemsley has been a reporter at the Tribune since uh, 2021. She's been covering religion and politics since 2019. Her work has appeared in Religion News Service, New York Post, and Religion and Politics. She holds a, ba- a bachelor's degree in journalism from Brigham Young University and a master's in Islamic studies from Hebrew University. Tamara Kemsley, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning. Uh, so I usually have you over on Behind the Headlines. We've had a bunch of stories I wanted to talk about over here on Access Utah. So, uh, by the way, I'd, I'd I guess I've just skipped over your bio in in, uh, times past. I didn't know you had a master's in Islamic studies from Hebrew University. I know. I know. Sometimes I forget that myself. (laughs) (laughs) What was was your interest there? What were you going to do with that? Oh, I was um, convinced that I was going to be a Middle East correspondent. And so that was my avenue in. It gave me a visa for a year. And then I ended up coming home after that year for a number of reasons, but it was an incredible experience. Yeah. Glad I did it. Yeah. Well, great. The twists and turns that life takes us, I guess. So. Exactly. Yeah. I want to, uh, this really caught my eye. I've always been interested in the uh, intersection of religion and, um, and politics and, and specifically religion and religious faith and how that affects our views uh, and activism on the environment. So you had a story recently, um, talking to some people from Latter-day Saint Earth Stewardship. I had not been familiar with this group. What is this? Yeah, so they're one of a number of grassroots nonprofits that have cropped up over the years by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in order to build a community around and an effort, a grassroots effort and focus on um, preserving the environment in all different numbers of ways. So in this case, you have a group that's divided into 12 fully anonymous, um, autonomous chapters across the globe. And so you might have, on any given Saturday, a number of um, members of the group of stewards in in Utah cleaning up the Jordan River, while across the globe their uh, counterparts in, like, the Philippines are planting mangroves. And what they do is they come together, these over Zoom and ways to have conversations about the intersection of their faith and these environmental efforts. I spoke with one woman who said, you know, sometimes it can feel a little lonely in the in church meetings, in your traditional church meetings. But LDS Church is one of historically the most staunchly um, Republican groups, and obviously the Republican Party has had a little bit of a, <clears throat> excuse me, of course, my daughter brought home a cult from daycare right before this. Um, <laughs> but the LDS story, the Republican Party um, has definitely dragged its feet more when it comes to the issue of climate change and, and confronting it. And so uh, these individuals have this concern that isn't always mirrored in their um, co-religionist or in the pews, but they're able to come together. And again, they're coming together from across the globe in these Zoom meetings to talk about specifically how they feel like their faith motivates them on this topic. And so there's both this um, action-oriented 
within their communities efforts that are tailored to the specific needs of the environments where they live, as well as this coming together, this circling the wagons in order to draw strength and community from one another on this very daunting task. And then just in, I was going to say just real quickly, um, the, um, the chapter located here in Salt Lake recently got involved with the twice daily hour long vigil around the Utah Capitol as part of the legislative season and supported that dressing up as, you know, brine shrimp and uh, seagulls to uh, participate in this visually very compelling, they called it a vigil to the Great Salt Lake. And they also, um, on their own, delivered handwritten letters or valentines to the different representatives, including um, elected officials, including Spencer Cox on Valentine's Day to say thank you for their efforts uh, supporting the Great Salt Lake, which I thought was quite charming. And I think that the vigil is going to go on through the session, right? I guess, which means through this Friday. Um, so mm-hmm. um, you talked to somebody called Shel- uh, Shelley Parkin, uh, describes mm-hmm. herself as a lifelong member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, she says she didn't always think of herself as an environmentalist. Um, tell us about the turning point. It was, I guess, a talk by Sharon Eubank, who was then a counselor in the church's uh, Relief Society organization. Yeah, Sherry Newbank is a tour de force. If anyone's ever heard her speak, um, she's a very compelling individual. And LDSES or the LDS um, Earth Stewardship Organization was able to get her as a speaker for one of their annual um, gatherings. And uh, Shelly was just kind of, you know, had had watched a documentary that had turned her on to the issues of the climate and and. And so um, participated in this. It was kind of on her radar. She hadn't really thought about the environment in terms of her faith ever before. But she said that Sharon Eubank, um, who was, like you said, the new counselor in the Church's Global Relief Society organization, which is the women's organization, delivered just this barn burner where she was connecting caring for the planet with caring for the poor. And caring for the poor is a well-established aim within and focus within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from the headquarters down. Um, Some could argue that they could be doing more, but nonetheless, it is something that is accepted broadly and widely as a, a tenet of the faith. And so by connecting the two, she was really making um, a case for those who are in and have grown up within the Latter-day Saint tradition for the for environmentalism, and Parkinson said she was just hooked, and from then on has been able to um, develop friendships in this wider community with others in um, in this movement. Uh, tell us the story of Randy Miguel. You talked to him as well. He's on the board, apparently, of this organization. Uh, how did how did he come to uh, connect his faith with the environment? Yeah, so he was um, he was initially born into the church, but his 
parents weren't active. His brother wasn't active. So he came into almost like a convert after he met someone in his high school who was outspoken about being a member of the LDS church. And and it was all part of um, the same experience, converting to the faith, converting to environmentalism was a, a one-two sort of joint experience because he um, felt like part of his religious awakening was just thinking harder about God's creation. And then as he was researching the church, he came across information about this idea of stewardship. And that really resonated with him. He said it just made sense that God expected his children to take care of his creation. And so really for his entire experience as a Latter-day Saint, it, it has been entirely shaped by this commitment to environmentalism, which I think is a pretty unique story and an intriguing one. Um, so you uh, you did a story, I think, last in the fall when this uh, study came out, and then you have it in this story as well. Um, there's a definite um, intersection between uh, political views, religious views, and views on the environment. Um, and you have a chart here. Um, from this study, impact of party loyalty and news store sources, and uh, among religious groups. Um, you know, despite the fact we've been talking about this particular group, and there, there are others as well, Latter-day Saints who are concerned about the environment, uh, it seems members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are lower on the spectrum in terms of worried about climate change, activism, that sort of thing in this area. Yeah, so that's a PRI study. It came out this um just recently, and it didn't look just at Latter-day Saints, and I should be very clear up front that it did not specify how many of its more than 5,000 response uh, respondents were members of the church. However, they did feel like they had enough clearly to um, <clears throat> estimate within about one and a half percentage points was their um, margin of error. And what they found is that just uh, 10% of Latter-day Saints said they're worried about climate change, um, making them one of the least concerned about the phenomenon that well-established and, and proven and is already very much impacting many people's lives. Um, and of those who actually did, you know, believe that climate change is occurring, uh, close to half placed the blame on natural phenomena, like just, you know, changes that occur every so often on the planet's surface. And almost 10%, 8% said there's no solid evidence that climate change is happening in the first place, which is um, quite striking. And so I think what this shows is a number of things, right, is the impact of uh, the relationship between the LDS Church and the Republican Party over the last several decades since the rise of the religious right. I think, too, it shows the impact of um, news sources. According to a recent analysis of 2022 data by the political scientist Ryan Burge, he's a, he is just so fascinating. He is obsessed with um, statistics and religion and politics and the interaction of the two. So he's always coming out with fun and interesting analyses. And recently he showed um, 
plunged into a data set and came up with the finding that in all, um, more than half, 54% of responding Latter-day Saints to this one uh, study say that they had watched Fox News in the last 24 hours. So more than half had watched it within the past day. Obviously, Fox News being a news source that um, is skews right. So this is all to say that the, these um, concerns are perhaps more driven, and the lack of concern is perhaps more driven by um, what the, their political identity more than their religious identity. Um, and that, according to George Hanley, who is a professor at Brigham Young University in Provo, and someone who has been very much concerned about writing about and involved in activism and um, around the issue of climate change, and specifically using LDS theology. He argues very strongly that Latter-day Saints have some of the most robust uh, theology in support of um, caring for and concern for the welfare of the planet. Um, anyways, what he has been observing in his classroom is a shift in, among his students, right? As younger, these new generations filter through his classroom, more and more don't see it, this kind of tension between their political or religious identity on this issue of climate change. They're just concerned. Um, and so I thought that was interesting to hear that there's apparently maybe a generational shift on this as well. Um, but I think the other important thing to point out about this study is that there's kind of this plot change that develops as you sift through the numbers, because even though the Latter-day Saint respondents were among, like I said, the least um, concerned about climate change. They were one of the most likely to say that stewardship of the earth is part of their belief system. So I think what we're getting here is that it has as much to do with the framing of the issue than the issue itself. Yeah. When couched in this language of stewardship, Latter-day Saints are overwhelmingly on board. It's just when you use this terminology of climate change and fighting climate change that you begin to alienate broad swaths. And that's where the intersection with uh, you know news sources and, and uh, politics comes in, I suppose. Uh, but uh, this, I don't know, does Professor Handley talk about what this word stewardship means to folks that, uh, you know, for, for the vast majority of Latter-day Saints, it seems it's not translating into activism, right? But, uh, um, I don't know, highway cleanup or what, what was, how is this translating? That's a really good question. And I don't know that we did have that conversation, he and I. Um, I think that is a conversation worth having for sure. Um, I, think that, you know, I'm trying to just think of other examples that I've seen. Um, the church itself has been putting out statements about its own efforts to uh, install water-wise um, irrigation at its various properties, in some cases letting grass go dormant during drought, 
Um, so just taking these very prudent measured actions, I think might fall under that category. At least that is a, an example that the church itself is starting to set. And I'm remembering the the church uh, the church itself did donate a lot of water to the Great Salt Lake, right? Water rights. Uh, so there's another example. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they did, and that was um, uh, in 2023. So the church is, you know one of the most influential institutions in Utah, and it worked with the Utah Department of Natural Resources uh, to announce a gift of about 20,000 acre feet worth of shares excuse me, um, in order to support uh, the Great Salt Lake, which obviously is facing some very dire predictions if, if action, greater action is not taken. But that was a a um, process that uh, Spencer Cox, you know, was very excited about. He definitely lauded the decision. It was kind of a one of the, one of a kind as a private entity, just sort of voluntarily uh, turning these over, and uh, definitely was a, a step in the right direction. But experts will say only only a small step. That there's much more needed. And you point out in your uh, couple of your stories here that um, after you know a long time of really a lot of silence over the pulpit, uh, some fairly prominent leaders in the in the church have now been talking directly about this. Stephen Snow, who was then a general authority seventy, said climate change is real. We have a responsibility to do something about it. Presiding Bishop Gerald Cose, in general conference. Um, talked about using the bountiful resources of the earth more reverently and prudently. So there have been have been some addresses addressing this directly over the pulpit. You bet. You bet. Yep. That's something else that George Hanley pointed out, is that he does see, in addition to a shift in the, gener- the generational shift, he does see greater concern, and he does hear more about it over these very official pulpits, like you said, General Conference, the Cosse um, Tech talk, like you said, was over general conferences, like the most official format for church leaders to give direction to members of the church. So for it to be spoken about in that context in particular is pretty pivotal pivotal and important to note. Uh, In other cases, for example, Apostle Delaney Jokes, who's um, second in line, for the presidency, he was speaking at BYU-Hawaii in 2017 when he talked about the impact of rising ocean levels and um, talks about, he used the term global warming. He said it's affecting agriculture and wildlife. So it's, it is getting some attention, right? It's starting to occur. How that translates into the um, rank and file membership, I think we'll have to see. But there is this example, again, of Latter-day Saint or stewardships, and then another one um, is the Mormon Environmental Steward Association, I believe it's called. MESA is the acronym, has cropped up. Um, yeah, so you've got clearly some movement it's, but it remains on the fringe, I think you could argue. 
Just one, a uh, couple more things on this, then we'll take a break, come back and talk about some other uh, of your stories. Uh, I noticed in this um, 2023 survey, uh, the, the question was asked, a percent who say climate change is a crisis. Uh, you noted uh, Latter-day Saints uh, answered that yes at about 10%. Um, let's see, uh, Jewish folks, about 32%. Hispanic Catholic, about 31 So that's where some of the others, other Protestants of color, 27 and then it goes down from there. But at the top, religiously unaffiliated. In uh, 2014, uh, 33% said, yes, it's a crisis. Uh, that's now up to uh, in the 40s. Uh, so religiously unaffiliated had the biggest change in that uh, answer to that question. Yeah, 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 you bet. And one of the um, negative correlations was the more active you are in your faith, the less concern you tend to be about climate change, which I thought was interesting. And so it would make sense then that for the religiously unaffiliated, who um, we can kind of uh, deduce from that term, right, that they're probably not going to church very often or going to worship in whatever um, capacity, that they are going to be more concerned, right? That negative relationship is in it, probably in play there. I always wonder, and I, you may not have an answer to this or have talked to some people about it, I always wonder on these uh, topics, a lot of religions have this, uh, you know, kind of millennialism, right? Uh, the second coming of uh, Jesus Christ, and that um, I, I do know that some religious people do have a an attitude, well, the, the Lord will clean it all up when he comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's something that I I have heard from Latter-day Saints, but I, not, not often, um, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's a play, especially for, again, older generations, um, but it's hard, it's a hard one to track, right? Mm -hmm. It's a really tricky sentiment to sort of pull, um, but it's one that, having lived in and reported in this space that I have heard from time to time, not often, but I think is probably there and probably at play. The sense that the second coming of Jesus is just around the corner. Um, These long-term predictions thus are just not of primary concern. I was interested in just to finally hear um, you have in your story a link of the Latter-day Saint Environmental Stewardship Group. They have a Ward Sustainability Guide. So I guess if you remember yeah, the Church of Jesus do. Christ of Latter-day Saints, you can check that out, and uh, they have some ideas here how you can act in your local area. Yeah, very, very, like, nuts and bolts, boots on the ground. They're very practical and very focused on practical application. Yep. Now, we've been talking about Latter-day Saints here, but I uh, should note, you know, many of such movements and other religions, uh, Interfaith Power and Light, is, uh, find them at interfaithpowerandlight.org. Um, uh, some other groups, just go to Earth Day, and you can find other uh, religions who are t- trying to be activists in this area as well. Uh, Tamara Kemsley, religion reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune, is uh, with us, and uh, we'll take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about an impactful story recently um, the headline is, in LDS and other abuse cases, forgiveness can be quote-unquote weaponized to silence victims and rob justice. We'll talk about that following this break. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Salt Lake Tribune religion reporter Tamara Kemsley. Uh, Later in the program, we have some time. We'll talk about uh, the latest study from the Pew Research Center about America's nuns, those who claim no religious identity. And uh, again, if we have time, we'll have a look at a new poll in which uh, maybe the only one in Utah where Joe Biden is leading Donald Trump, and that's uh, by the measure of which candidate is a person of faith. But uh, right now we want to talk about uh, this story. Headline is, in uh, Latter-day Saint and other abuse cases, forgiveness can be, quote-unquote, weaponized, silence victims and rob justice. So you talk about the case of uh, Chelsea Goodrich. Um, t- tell us about uh, Chelsea Goodrich. Yeah, she grew up um, Latter-day Saint in a very close-knit community of fellow believers in a town called Mountain Home in Idaho. Um, was very dedicated when served a mission, was very, very active in the faith. And um, while she was attending graduate school in California, decided to come forward with allegations that her father had sexually abused her as a child and teenager. And um, she was a subject of a investigative piece by the AP in which the uh, church had her sign an NDA for which she was paid, um, that she would not sue the church. And she hasn't, but she has come forward with her story for um, the reason that she feels it's incredibly important to talk about, that since she knows, I, I should just couch this, and I want to be very careful, um, since she came forward, She's had other members of the church, other women like her, who have come forward with similar stories, and that has really compelled her, I think, to be vocal about her experience, um, because it was a disheartening one for her, insofar that she had assumed that if she would come forward with these um, allegations, right, that she would be supported, and that she would have... um, her community who had raised her, right, that they would rally around her. And that was not the case. In fact, um, many used very faith-based language in emails and messages that she shared with me, as well as in conversations, where they argued that by her trying to seek some kind of, well, for her, what was most important was to prevent further harm, as she saw it. Um, She wanted to limit her father's access to other minors, her primary concern being that uh, others would experience what she alleges to have experienced, right? Um, But instead, she was largely encouraged to forgive and forget. And I think what's so powerful about, or what was so challenging about this, is that forgiveness is absolutely, inarguably, a founding tenet of Christianity, of many religions, and definitely of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So by using forgiveness as a way to encourage her silence, they were able to argue that she was actually 
you denying the atonement or the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, that was very difficult, as you might imagine, for hear, her to hear, because forgiveness was already something that her father had used, she said, in her experience, to try and get her to um, remain silent about her experiences. And so then to hear it again from these people who she had trusted and who had raised her and I'm not speaking, her mother believed her, her mother has been a strong ally, but relatives, um, members of her congregation, this is who she was hearing this from, as well as the um, representative for the church who had written her the check and um, given her the contract to sign. And so I spoke with uh, Deidre Green, who is just a brilliant theologian and a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She's an assistant professor at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. And so the weaponization of forgiveness is something that we see all the time, that she has seen all the time in, uh, in the Latter-day Saint tradition and other religious traditions who use this uh, or who believe in this today, right? And that she specifically said, often when it's used, when it's weaponized, it's because there's a dif differentiation in power, whether it has to do with race or gender, socioeconomic background. They're all different kinds of factors, right, that give certain individuals more power over others within a community. In this case, Chelsea's father was older. He was... Um, a man in a patriarchal religion, right? He had actually served as bishop and was very close with the stake president who was above him um, and other male leaders in the church. And those were these male leaders who then dragged their feet when um, Chelsea and her mother came forward with this information, with these allegations. And so what Deidre said is that, like I said, this is common. It has usually this power differential. And that what it is is actually not asking for forgiveness, which is includes the difficult work, right, of restitution, but rather a brushing under the rug in order to keep a status quo and to avoid really difficult and uncomfortable conversations within these tight-knit communities. So in this case, Chelsea's congregation. Uh, I want to go forward. You, you talked to some other people here. This is, is such fascinating, um, this, you know, important discussion. Um, the, the, just to, to um, recount some of the facts here, prosecutors declined to prosecute, right? They said there wasn't enough yeah. evidence. But um, Chelsea's father did, did do a spiritual confession to, I guess, his bishop. He was excommunicated, I understand. Um, but Chelsea feels like the church uh, beyond that was not doing enough. Right, right. Yeah, he was excommunicated, but um, she and her mother asked that his excommunication be made public. 
in an effort to try to warn um, parents of minors in the ward. They, um, the leaders declined. And then she also later tried to um, encourage local leadership to get involved when a family member moved in with their child into the home of her father. And again, um, it's unclear whether they got involved, but these are some of the examples, right, of her hoping that there would be more um, more action because excommunication, it was quiet. There was no one, there was no way for anyone on the outside to know what had happened unless Chelsea and her mother told them. And <clears throat> Chelsea and her mother, as you might imagine, um, tried and received pushback. Uh, the It became a kind of he said, she said, where, um, according to them, the father said, no, 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 I'm not the abusive one. The, the mother is. Anyways, it was just um, very messy. And... And Chelsea just felt like she was not being heard, and she believed that if the church leadership got involved, people would listen to them. Mm. And that was what her hope was. Mm. Um, so in your story here, you um, you quote Rachel Whipple. Uh, tell us who Rachel Whipple is. What did she say about uh, about forgiveness in this context? Yeah, Rachel Whipple is... Um, She's written a lot about forgiveness. She's a lawyer <clears throat> who has worked with a lot of um, individuals through a free legal clinic that she volunteers at in uh, Provo. About this experience, one thing that she talked about was, you know, growing up as a member of the church, she always understood that accepting the legal consequences of one's transgression was part of the process of repentance. But she said she also never felt like it was ever, she was ever told that it was within her right, if she found herself to be a victim, to demand those legal consequences, which she thought was an interesting sort of tension. The other thing she said is that in her work, she has also seen forgiveness weaponized against clients, including women who come to her in abusive relationships, who then are encouraged by their bishop to go and return to the abusive relationship under the auspices of, again, forgiveness. Uh, in your story, you also you quote uh, several leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, talking about this topic, forgiveness. Uh, what uh, You quote President Hinckley, former president of the church, uh, Chieko Okazaki, who's a former member of the Ruth Society Presidency, uh, new apostle Patrick Kieran. Um, there seems to be a slightly different emphases in, among each of these. Yeah, yeah well put. So... Whipple brought up the story of, um, or the quote from Hinckley, which was, he tells the story in one of his general conference addresses where these two boys or, or 
I forget exactly how old they are. They're driving. They, as a prank, throw a frozen turkey outside their window as they're driving. It hits the windshield of a woman behind them, cracks it, smashes her face. She has to go through heavy um, reconstructive surgery. And that she then became an advocate for these two individuals, that they would get the minimum sentence possible because she did not want them to spend time in jail over this incident. And as Whipple points out, this is kind of lauded as this is the best way for a victim to act, this sort of advocating for the um, the person who has harmed them, which I thought was interesting. And then um, Patrick Kieran, he recently gave a very direct, one of the maybe the most direct and uh, pointed talks that we've heard from, and he's a new apostle, I should note, in general conference speaking directly to survivors of sexual abuse, saying this is not your fault. Um, and then Chieko Oksaki, she was formerly, um, she has since passed on, but she was a very popular and very uh, dynamic leader in the church uh, years back who gave a talk at BYU. It was very, it was like 13 pages, single space, all on this issue of sexual assault and surviving sexual assault. And she spoke about this um, relationship between and the need for individuals to face the legal consequences in the case of sexual assault, saying that in doing so, we're actually helping that person who has committed the act to uh, move along their repentance process. And, and thus, it is a loving act, which is something else that D.J. Green said. It is a loving act to hold people accountable in these cases, because ultimately, it does them moral harm when they are harming others, that their well-being is not the priority. But nonetheless, if we are going to, to be concerned about them, this is actually a form of living that great commandment to love your neighbor that by holding them accountable. Uh, so, Tamara Kemsley, you end your story, uh, to, I'll just quote this, um, the right time to forgive, Whipple and Green agreed, is simple, when the victim is ready. Um, and then you go on to say the church's own instructions for bishops uh, seem to back this idea. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting to see that in the handbook given to lay leaders of congregations. The church was very explicit, saying, you don't rush them, you don't try to force them or tell them the priority isn't forgiveness. The priority is making the person whole and safe and loved. That's the priority. Mm. The forgiveness comes after or whenever that individual decides. Well, thanks for telling us about all this. Um, we'll take another break. Uh, when we come back, um, We'll, we'll talk about, uh, try to fit in a couple of stories here if we have time, uh, starting with the one measure, probably the only measure in Utah where Joe Biden leads Donald Trump in the latest poll. Um, and uh, we'll uh, also, if we get time, talk about the new Pew study on 
the nuns. That's not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. These are uh, people who uh, claim no religious affiliation. Uh, We'll talk more with Salt Lake Tribune religion reporter Tamara Kemsley following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have about uh, nine or ten minutes left in the hour, and we're talking with Salt Lake Tribune religion reporter Tamara Kemsley. Uh, Tamara, I wanted to talk about this uh, latest poll from the Deseret News, Hinkley Institute of Politics. Uh, They surveyed uh, uh, respondents uh, asking about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, whether they are people of faith, what, uh, what were the overall results? Yeah, so there were 801 registered voters polled. Um, and of those, just under half, 47%, said they viewed Biden as a person of faith compared to a third, 33%, for Trump. Um, so, yeah, we've got... Famously, you know, Biden is someone who is very steeped, very devout in his Catholic faith. He is. He attends mass um, often. He's one of uh, the most religiously active of any president in generations on that account. And then, in contrast, right, um, President Trump, former President Trump, has been often. There's a lot of head scratching that went around after he dominated in the evangelical vote because he's someone who just very openly flouts many of the uh, more traditional moral codes of the religious right and nonetheless has done remarkably well with that category. So this is interesting to look specifically at Utah. And what they also looked at was Mitt Romney. Um, who 77% said was a person of faith. So that he came first, followed by Joe Biden, followed by Donald Trump. Um, but what was really interesting was how this shook out based on a number of different factors and most, as you might suspect, by party affiliation. So if he looks just at Republicans, right, then um, it's what it, Swap suddenly a third say Joe Biden is a person of faith and 47% say Donald Trump is a person of faith. And that um, is interesting because the facts aren't necessarily changing, but what the people, the um, political scientists I spoke to said what they think is happening here is something they're seeing in a lot of their um of polls taking place, which is that <clears throat> people are voting according to what will make their political team look more favorable and the members of their political team, whether they're Republican or Democrat, rather than what they actually believe is reflected by the information they're given. And so it's almost like just a a vote for your party <laughs> um, is it considered? It's generally considered to be better to be a person of faith, um, and thus, you, you know, especially among Republican voters, and thus more of them are going to say yes for Donald Trump than for Joe Biden, who is a Democrat. 
Um, what's interesting, though, is that Mitt Romney doesn't get to 100%. Mitt Romney, who is LDS, who is very active in his faith, famously um, one of the most prominent Latter-day Saints politicians, he he's stuck at that 76, almost a quarter, say he's not of the Republicans, say he's not a person of faith, right? Um, and then the other thing that I thought was really interesting was that when you looked at activity rates among the Latter-day Saint respondents, the ones who are more likely or more active in their faith were less likely to see Donald Trump as a person of faith. So there was a negative correlation there, right? If they were very active in their faith, they were less likely to see Trump as a person of faith. I thought that was a little um, something going on there that I don't know if I quite understand, but worth noting. I just have uh, about three or four minutes left. I want to change gears. I noticed you tweeted out, I don't know what we call it these days, X'd out, whatever you did. You, you went on X for me. To, uh, <laughs> I know, <Twitter>. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, very interesting. Uh, something you're working on. You, uh, you said you wanted to hear from people about the uh, religious divide, right, and how we're getting along in our neighborhoods. I thought this was mm-hmm. uh, very, very interesting. Of course, Utah predominantly, you know, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but many people not of that faith uh, live here as well. Um, so you wanted to—I'll just read mm-hmm. some of these. Um, do you have neighborhood socials uh, in your neighborhood? Do all the residents feel welcome to attend, or do such parties divide along religious identities? Uh, do Latter-day Saint children play with kids not of their faith, and vice versa? Uh, be very interesting when you get the results here, and I guess publish a story on this. Yeah, stories, right? We're trying to do a series on how the religious divide of between members of the LDS faith and non-members of LDS faith, including former members of the Mormon Church. How, how are they getting on? How prevalent is that tension or not? Is it um, playing out an example, for example, in like, as you mentioned, whose kids are able to play with whose kids? Or is it just not that important and that much of an identity marker? And does it vary? Is it perhaps very much an identity marker in Davis County, but less so in Summit County? These are the questions we're trying to understand and just the lived experience of Utahns generally. So definitely reach out. Um, You can email me at t. Kimsley at sltrip.com. That's K-E, Evans and Mary, S is in Sam, L-E-Y at sltrip.com. Or just go into our uh, website. If you go down to the staff pages there, you can get mine or Peggy or Dave Noyce. All of us are working on this, and our emails are there on the website at sltrip.com. Because this is, this is important for us. And so far, we've gotten just based on our initial ask, we have just gotten a flood of information. So there's clearly something going on here, and we have yet to sort through responses and start looking at what this means for everyday Utahns. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I'll just mention a couple more of these questions. If you're teetotaling Latter-day Saint, do you socialize with those who drink? This one jumped out at me. Do you see favoritism in real estate? Do Latter-day Saints get first crack at buying a home, or are they bypassed because of their religion? Um, so, yeah, give us that, in, give us that contact information again of people to respond to this. 
Yeah, go ahead and uh, you can email me at t k e m s l e y at slcher.com. tkimsley at slcher.com or go to slcher.com, go to the staff, and you'll find all our emails. Uh, so tomorrow, what are you working on now? What are, what are we going to see in the Tribune in the, I don't know, the next week or two? <laughs> so I just got back from a reporting trip at the U.S.-Mexico border and talked to members of the church there about how the border impacts and shapes their religious communities. Um, as you might expect, it does quite a bit. And I am working on going through that and piecing together these narratives that tie in the different themes that I that I came across. And so that's uh, that's going to take some time, but that was a really impactful trip for me and one that I'm excited to share. Okay, we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, uh, sltrib.com to, to look at all of tomorrow's reporting. Uh, we've been talking with Salt Lake Tribune religion reporter Tamara Kemsley. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for your time. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to uh, Access Utah. Appreciate it.